please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Our sermon text this morning comes from Philippians 3, the first 11 verses. Before we turn there, let's turn to Genesis 17. We'll be reading verses 9 through 14. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's on page 12. A beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus, this is God's holy, infallible, and abiding word. Give your full attention to it. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Let's turn now to Philippians 3. Using the Pew Bible, that's on page 981. Uh, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray. O Lord our God, uh, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Our Lord, our Rock, and our Redeemer, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, 
Well, last time we were in Philippians, we looked at Paul's travel plans. Uh, if that was a break from his heavy theology that Paul has been laying down, and now he's back with a vengeance. Uh, our passage is jam-packed with heavy theology. Uh, so let's just get started. Here's the big idea for us this morning. And it's this, everything we esteem precious in this life pales in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ. Everything we esteem precious in this life pales in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul begins with what has been common in his letter so far. Uh, We should be accustomed to hearing him uh, say this by now. He says, rejoice, but this time he adds, in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And apparently, Paul believed that certain people with certain agenda uh, could potentially ruin their joy in the Lord. Uh, Maybe he heard it from Epaphroditus, I don't know. Uh, But there's a potential um, danger of people coming in and disturbing their joy in the Lord. Uh, So three times, Paul tells the Philippians to look out for such people. Uh, But who were these people? I think they're probably the opponents Paul constantly dealt with during his ministry. Uh, Especially, uh, he especially deals with them in Galatians. Uh, We know them by that pejorative term, Judaizers. Uh, You get the sense just how seriously Paul took them uh, with the kind of language that he uses. Uh, Because for Paul, they were not simply wrong about the minor things. They were dead wrong about the major things. Uh, This is why Paul will later say of them in this letter, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. They're enemies. Such people belong outside of the covenant community. Look out for those dogs, Paul says. I mean, I don't think anybody in this room wants to be called a dog, right? And I'm not talking about how young people call each other dogs. What's up, dog, and things like that. Uh, This is super offensive. Dogs were filthy animals, And according to the Old Testament, they were unclean. Very different than the way dogs are treated today. Uh, Dogs weren't pampered house pets. They were intruders. They belonged outside of the house. Just read Revelation 22 uh, today, where the dogs are outside of the kingdom of God. Obviously, that's metaphorical. Uh, But Paul might also have in mind wolves, because those are dogs. They're vicious animals infiltrating the house. Uh, Paul, in the Greek, calls these same people evil workers. Uh, That should really sound off a few passages we've encountered so far. Uh, Verse 6 in chapter 1, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Or in chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, Uh, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work his good pleasure. Uh, These evil workers here are probably opposed to that kind of work. They're not relying on God. They're relying on themselves. Any type of self-reliance for Paul 
is considered evil work, worthy of expulsion from the covenant community. Uh, Even more, uh, Paul calls them the mutilators of the flesh. They are of the mutilation. Uh, They're cutters. I think Paul is being uh, pretty sarcastic here. Because these people's goal was to get Gentile believers circumcised. That they might be full members of the community of God. Uh, You know, you're not allowed until you bear this mark in your flesh, they said. Uh, For Paul, this teaching was opposed to the good news that has happened in Christ. Uh, You know, go back to chapter 2, verse 5 through 11, the work of Christ there. Their agenda wasn't just to circumcise, however. They wanted to cut off the whole thing. Uh, You might, uh, Paul might be appealing to Deuteronomy uh, 23, verse 1 here. There's this fly that keeps hovering over me. Uh, Paul might be appealing to Deuteronomy 23, verse 1 here, uh, which says that anyone with mutilated flesh cannot enter the assembly of the Lord. You get that? These same people who wanted to circumcise Gentiles Paul says, the same people who are not allowed in the assembly of the Lord. This, again, is is language of exclusion. And so it turns out, they are the outsiders, not the Philippian Gentiles. By insisting circumcision on Gentile followers, they were undermining the work of Christ, uh, denying what has definitively happened in Christ It's to act as if God is not now restoring Israel and bringing the nations as the nations. Not not by becoming Jews, but, but as the nations in Jesus Christ. Christ has broken down the wall of separation. And these people are rebuilding it. And so making Gentile males go under the knife... Uh, would be to deny the restoration and salvation that has already taken place in the Lord Jesus. That through faith, the nations are now part of God's one people. Uh, Listen to this from Ephesians 2. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, uh, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who, who, uh, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ." See, these people would be bringing into question the Philippians' citizenship in heaven. Are you truly members in God's family? But Paul, remember, Paul has already identified them as the holy ones. Chapter 1, verse 1. They were already children of God. Chapter 2, verse 15. They have a rightful citizenship in the kingdom as they are. And so Paul wants these Gentile followers to remain as Gentiles, to remain who they are. They don't need to take on a complete Jewish identity. 
And you know what? That's actually Paul's rule to the churches in 1 Corinthians 7. He says this, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his uncircumcised, of, at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. So, in a surprising inversion, Paul goes on to say, We are the circumcision. Not those dogs, not those evil workers, not those cutters of the flesh. It's us. What circumcision? Circumcision was that covenantal mark that God gave to Abraham. We read it uh, earlier in our Old Testament reading. It was the cutting of the foreskin of Jewish males and all the males that were brought into the house. It's God's covenant. It was eternal, right? But circumcision that benefits anyone must transcend to the heart. It's not enough for the, for the foreskin to be cut. A spiritual incision must take place in the heart. And that's why Paul says in the end of uh, Romans 2, circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And this idea was already present in Israel's scriptures. It's not new. Uh, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. Deuteronomy 10, 16. And since we're in the book of Jeremiah right now, here's one from Jeremiah chapter 9. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh, Egypt, Judah, Edom, and the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. And so according to Jeremiah, you can't merely cut the foreskin. Otherwise, your confidence is only in the flesh. Israel was no different at that time than the uncircumcised nations around them. If their hearts remained uncircumcised, their circumcision was nothing. And so circumcision is only truly valuable if it matches the heart. If, as Paul says, one worships in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And for this reason, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. If the outward sign of circumcision doesn't translate to faith and obedience, it's nothing. It's of no value to anyone. But listen, Paul was the quintessential Jew. I was the most privileged one of them all, Paul says. I had all the outward privileges. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. 
Again, this is from Genesis 17, where God makes that everlasting covenant with Abraham. It's when the infant males would enter into the covenant community, the covenant family, along with any foreigner in the house. But it was only those who were born as Israelites that get circumcised on the eighth day. It's a mark of inclusion into the people of God, signifying God's blessing to the whole, whole world through Abraham. And no wonder it was so important to the Jews. Uh, but the cream of the crop is if you belong to the tribe of Benjamin. Out of the 12 tribes of Israel, that's Paul's tribe. And so he concludes, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. These were all things Paul was born into. He was privileged to have such a high and uh, privileged status. But even more, Paul's religious achievements were far better than other people. He excelled as a religious leader in Israel. He was a Pharisee. And I know Pharisees get a bad rap, um, but they were the strictest, most committed leaders in Israel in those days. They were highly respected among people. And not only was he a Pharisee, Paul was more zealous than other Pharisees. He even persecuted the church. He dragged men and women into prison because he was zealous for the house of God. He did not yet come to the realization of who Christ is. And finally, Paul says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. You know, this probably sounds funny to us uh, in the Reformed tradition, uh, but I, I really think it shouldn't bother us. Uh, Paul is not saying that he was sinless. That's not it. Let's get that picture out of, our, out of our heads because he'll go on to say that he wants to be found in Christ not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the Torah or the law. And plus in Romans, uh, he says that all are under sin. And so what do we make of this statement? I think Paul is simply saying that in a humanly spirit, in a humanly way of speaking, he did everything he could to uphold the law. That's Paul. He was born into a privileged status, and he achieved a privileged status. But here's what I don't want you to miss. The Philippians would have seen the great value in Paul's Jewish identity. They would, have been, they would have been great privileges, not impediments. Otherwise, Paul's argument would hold no power. If they didn't think anything of it, then the temptation of putting your confidence in those things would not make any sense. And why would Paul say, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So were they privileges? Yes, Jews, as the covenant people of God, were highly privileged. That's a no-brainer, right? Paul puts it like this in Romans 3. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, 
is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But you know what? Paul would not use his Jewish pedigree to boast, because those were no longer his confidence. I mean, here's the upshot uh, to what Paul is saying here. You know, you'll never have Paul's kind of religious status. You'll never be circumcised on the eighth day. It's way too late for that. You'll never be, you'll never be born of an Israelite, as an Israelite, and certainly not in the tribe of Benjamin. You'll never be a Hebrew of Hebrews like Paul. But here's the thing. You don't have to be. You don't have to be. Because Christ, Christ has come to give us true confidence. But what Paul is not saying is that these things are inherently from the flesh. I mean, read the Old Testament. These things are from God. They're good gifts. Paul couldn't stop being a Hebrew if he wanted to. That's just who he was. And so Paul is not denouncing his Jewish identity. Paul finds nothing problematic with that. Quite the contrary. He was one and he remained as one. And more importantly, our Savior is one. Paul's point then is that when we use God's gifts, our privileges for ourselves above other people, when we are pushing others out because of our pedigree and achievements, then we are trusting in the flesh. Those things become of the flesh. We would be putting our confidence in them and not in the God who gives them. You know, Paul, before encountering the risen Christ, uh, put his confidence in his privileged heritage, his religious achievements. But for him, the gospel changed everything. Even those things that he held so tightly to became as nothing. For Paul, whatever gain he had as an Israelite, whatever gain he had as a Pharisee, he considered as loss. Why? Because he wanted to desperately know the Lord Jesus. It was all worth it for Paul. Knowing Christ is far more valuable. I love how he puts it here. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And this, this knowing, this isn't just more intellectual information about Jesus. It's an intimate kind of knowing. Knowing like Adam knew Eve. Knowing as in loving Christ and being loved by Christ. And it wasn't only Paul's religious privileges that he counted as loss, but Paul counted everything as loss. His comforts, his reputation, even his own freedom. He counted everything as loss. Paul is resolved to lay down everything, to empty himself, as it were. He would follow Jesus, even if it meant suffering. Paul says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I mean, do you notice how Paul patterns himself after Jesus here? 
He sets aside all of his privileges for the sake of others. Just as Jesus did not consider equality with God something to use for his own advantage, so Paul did not consider his Jewish status and achievements as things for his own advantage. He chose instead to lower himself and to identify with Jesus and for whom he is now suffering for. And not only did he count everything as loss, Paul counted everything like the number two in my son's diaper. Ever since my son started eating solids, uh, it's been a different ball game. <laughs> you know, his diapers have gotten stinkier and stinkier. Paul counted everything as rubbish. That's British slang for poop. Uh, excrement, feces, refuse, manure, dung. Man, there's a lot of poop words. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll probably never talk about poop in a pulpit, but here's my chance. <laughs> Paul is happy to consider all things as poo-poo. Why? In order that I may gain Christ, Paul says. Family, do you value Christ like that? Jesus has to be so valuable to you that everything, everything else pales in comparison. That losing your greatest treasures here on earth become as nothing compared to gaining Christ. Is Jesus that valuable to you? And so Paul's confidence rested on not his own pedigree and observance of the law, but in God's faithfulness to keep his promises in Christ. This is why Paul said, um, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Because God's promises in Christ are yes and amen. That's where Paul wanted to be found in Christ, in his Savior. And to be found in Christ is to take on the form of Christ, the form that Jesus took here on earth. Jesus was found in human likeness, and he took on the lowly form of a servant, a slave. And it was in that lowly form that Jesus lived a life of faithfulness. He was completely righteous before the Father, perfect obedience. And so the faithfulness of Jesus put an end to Paul's self-confidence, to Paul's religious strivings. Paul's confidence now rested on the righteousness of Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, Paul says. Isn't, isn't that what circumcision is all about? Circumcision was a sign and a seal of the confidence of someone who trusted, who had all the confidence in God. Uh, Paul makes this argument in Romans 4, where he points out that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. When? Before he was circumcised, not after. Uh, because circumcision was a seal of the righteousness that he already had by faith. And that's why you can be circumcised or uncircumcised and still belong in the household 
of God. As an aside, um, Paul makes this connection between circumcision and baptism, doesn't he? This is why we baptize infants. As, um, as Jewish infants were circumcised on the eighth day, you know, those little infants could not exercise faith. But yet, when they can look back to it, it pointed to the coming uh, faith that they might have or did have. It's just like our baptism. Uh, look at what Paul says next. In verses 10 through 11, Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And so for Paul, you cannot know Jesus and the power of his resurrection if you are unwilling to participate in his suffering. It's impossible because there is no resurrection without the cross. We can't circumvent our way into resurrection because we can't know Jesus without becoming like him. And so proselytizing, becoming fully Jewish might have been enticing for this very reason for the Philippians Uh, because Jews who did not follow Jesus at that time, uh, they were not treated like those who did follow Jesus. They were recognized by the empire. Jesus' followers were not. And this is why Paul is suffering, right? And so becoming one would have alleviated some pressure on them. This would have been tempting to the Philippians. Uh, It's a temptation to escape suffering as... um, Uh, with those who follow Jesus. But you know, that's, that's the road we must follow. There's a road to follow if you want to know Christ and the power of, and the power of his resurrection. And it's the road of suffering and death. It's impossible to love Jesus and experience the power of his raised resurrection body for us without suffering without becoming like Jesus in his death. Uh, I I want you to let that sink in for a second, because there's not a message like that in this world. Many of us us want the easy way. Uh, We want to walk the easy road. But attaining the resurrection life, it uh, it is to travel the bloody road of the crucifixion. That's what it means to walk the way Jesus walked. But remember, the way Paul started this section, rejoice in the Lord. If you're walking with Jesus, no matter how painful it is, you have a joy that can never be taken away. I like the way Peter puts it. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. You know, your joy can only grow from here. When resurrection glory is revealed, your joy will be made complete. That is our hope. And though tempted, uh, Jesus never took the easy road. 
Jesus too counted all things as loss. He suffered the loss of all things, even his own life on the cross. Why? To gain you. To have you. He treasured you that much. Uh, Let me just close with this uh, reflection this morning. Uh, Some of you are here for worship every Sunday. You hear the word preached. You've been baptized. You partake of the Lord's Supper. You, You participate in the church's liturgy. You attend fellowship lunch. You serve those in need. You know, you can do all of those things, and your heart can still be far from God. Don't let your church activities become your confidence. Because if those are the end and aren't means to the end, then they are of no value to you. God does not want religious busybodies. God wants your hearts. Uh, This meal before us is a reminder of Christ uh, suffering on your behalf. When we eat and drink of it, we participate in his sufferings. We fellowship in his pains that that culminated at the cross. And so this meal, then, is a fellowship meal. We participate in the horrific sufferings of Christ. But it also prepares us for that glory yet to be unveiled to us in the fullest of manner. It prepares us for resurrection. In it, we have a foretaste of life unending, life with the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'd like to invite the elders that we might partake of this meal. Let's pray. O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, We are thankful that you feed us with your precious word made visible to us in the bread and the wine. We pray that you would hide your word deep in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Remind us all the week long of your promises in Christ. Remind us that you will never cut us off because Christ was circumcised on the cross for us. We pray in the name of him who bled and died for sinners, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.